Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, So being sent out by the Spirit, they, speaking of Barnabas and Saul, went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the law and the prophets and the gospels and the letters, the Psalms. We thank you for all of it. We thank you for the more didactic passages as well as the narrative passages. It's all breathed out by the same God, by you. And it's all good for us that we would be taught and instructed and trained in righteousness, that we would be equipped for every good work. And so this morning here from Acts 13, as we look at this dynamic church in Antioch, I pray that you would show us what you have here for us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Really, no matter, excuse me, no matter how you may outline the book of Acts, the 13th chapter of this book uh, really sets the stage for a new phase of advancement in the gospel. The first phase, you might say, started in chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. The 120 in the upper room were filled. It spilled out into the streets. Many visitors were there because of Pentecost, and 3,000 were saved. The first phase probably goes from chapter 2 to maybe chapter 7 when, uh, when Stephen is stoned to death. The second phase that we see in the book of Acts starts in chapter 8 when the believers are scattered from Jerusalem. After Stephen was stoned, it says that, that many of the disciples except the apostles scattered and they went out into Judea and even as far as Samaria, someone even further. And so the gospel went beyond the borders of Jerusalem, which was kind of the hub and center for, for quite some time. And what we see here in Acts 13 is this, this third phase where the gospel not, it doesn't just go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, which is what Acts 1.8 says, but here we see the gospel beginning to go into foreign, foreign places, to the uttermost parts of the, of the earth. We see that starting right here. The church at, at Antioch really was the first missionary sending church. And so it's incredibly important that we understand the importance of this, and that we, we pick up on some things, some lessons we might be able to get from this church. One thing that we see over and over in the book of Acts is that the church is always advancing. They, they're never kind of just stuck maintaining. And, and when we see that they are perhaps, like maybe in Acts 5 or 6, God gets them moving again. Right? So the church was kind of stuck in Jerusalem, and, and God had this plan through Stephen being martyred for the church to spread beyond there because the church is always to be advancing. And Jesus said this. He, when he talked in Matthew 16, uh, speaking to Peter, he says, on, on this rock, the rock of your confession of who Christ is, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. 
So the church is to be advancing. It's to be going forward. It's never to be always in maintenance mode or kind of stuck, right? There's certainly a time for that, a place for that. Sometimes we feel like we're just barely surviving. That happens. But at the end of the day, the church, in order to achieve the mission that Christ has given to her, is to be advancing. In any war, there's certainly a time for maintenance, right? To maintain the ground you've taken. But a war will never be won if an army just maintains. It must always advance. Now, we... I think, and I I run the risk of this, and perhaps you do too, I think we run the risk of slipping into a maintenance mode where we're only concerned about our well-being, whether it's me personally, me and my family personally, me and my church personally, or me and my town personally. Just kind of get into maintenance mode where we kind of turn in on ourselves. John Piper, uh, commenting on this text, said, The book of Acts is a constant indictment of mere maintenance Christianity. It is a constant goad and encouragement and stimulation to fan the flame. And so I I hope that this morning I can help serve through the, the scriptures and the Holy Spirit to fan the flame for you. It's hard to overestimate the importance of this moment here in Acts 13. I mean, really, not only in the history of the church, but in the history of the world. I mean, it's only going to be 15 to 17 years after this prayer meeting in Acts 13 that Paul is going to spread the gospel to almost the entire Roman Empire. He's going to end up in Rome where he's going to be beheaded, but he spreads the gospel in a short period of time throughout the empire of the most powerful people on earth. In only two and a half centuries from this prayer meeting, Christianity will be the most dominant religion in the Roman Empire. And, you know, for good or for for bad, Constantine legalized it as the state religion or as legalized it anyways. Some say a state religion. Anyways, I don't want to get off track. All right. And today, Christianity by far, as far as professing Christians, is the largest religion in the world. And it started right here. It didn't start right here. It started in the death and resurrection of Christ. But this foreign missions movement started right here in this prayer meeting with these, with these believers. Remember, Barnabas and Saul had just returned from Jerusalem after delivering the gift for those affected by the famine. And upon returning... This church at Antioch, I get the idea. They basically said, okay, what's next, Lord? What do you have next for us? This was a a church that was passionate to spread the fame of Jesus Christ. They were passionate to spread the gospel, the good news of what Christ had done for The good news of what we just sang about for 30 minutes. The good news of who Christ is, of his perfect atoning death, of his resurrection. And I think it requires us to stop and think when we think about this church and their passionate zeal to spread the fame of Jesus requires us to stop and think what is the makeup of this church that made them so dynamic? I mean, there's only one church at Antioch, okay? Uh, There's only one inaugural 
uh, missions conference where they sent out the first missionaries. That only happens once, and it happened here. But what was the makeup of this church? What did they value? What did they, what did they love that made them such a dynamic church? Because I think th- these are lessons for us. I think these are lessons for us. You and I, we too, where we are now, where we are tomorrow, where we are next year, where we are 10 years from now, we are all called in small and bigger ways to advance the gospel of Jesus. And the most immediate, if you're a parent, is with your children, with, with your kids, to advance the gospel by speaking into their lives and raising kids that love Jesus. So what are some lessons we can take away from this church? I want to look at what I think are five transferable lessons from the church at Antioch, okay? So five transferable lessons from the church at Antioch we see in these four verses. First of all, the church at Antioch was a worshiping church. They worshiped. You might say, well, duh. But it was more than just outward form. They worshiped. They were were known for their worship. It says in verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And I don't get the idea that this was some special worship gathering, but this was something, this is what what they did. They worshiped the Lord. The gathering was centered around the worship of Jesus Christ. And I think it's safe to say that worship was what fueled this church. It's what pushed them forward. It's what energized them. The Holy Spirit used the worship of Jesus. And in one sense, worship has always been at the center of what God's people do. From way back in the book of Exodus, remember when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh. And you're going to go to Pharaoh, and you're going to say to him, let my people go so that they may come out and what? Worship me. So that they may come out and worship me. But I think whereas the Old Testament often focused on form and outward expression with the temple worship and tabernacle worship of, of forms and ceremonies and washings and rituals, the New Testament shifts the focus from the external things that we do to the internal reality of our hearts. Jesus condemned the Pharisees because he said, you're just given to outward form. You, you worship me or you honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from me. You know all the right things. That Pharisees could be in here and the words on the screen, they could sing with us. In fact, they might be better singers than us. I don't know. Might be beautiful, probably. <clears throat> but they could do that and yet had their hearts be a million miles away. And Jesus says, that is not worship. So worship in the New Testament is this inward reality. Jesus said in John 4 that we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. I I think that's a way of saying we're to worship him in the depth of our hearts, our emotions, our affections and spirit, and in truth with our minds focused on truth. So there needs to be the inner reality of worship. And 
apparently the church at Antioch had it. They were worshiping the Lord. John Piper, um, not commenting on this, in, in a message on worship, he says this, the inner essence of worship is cherishing Christ. It's savoring Christ. It's treasuring Christ above everything else. It is being satisfied with Christ and it is prizing Christ. That's what worship is. This church was a worshiping church. Now, I want to shift just a bit. It's inward reality, but it finds outward expression. It always does. You know, don't you, that we are all worshipers. We are all worshipers. You go to a concert and you got someone in the middle and you got thousands of people on the outside of the stadium waving their fists in the air, yelling and screaming because they love that person down there. What are they doing? It's worship. We're all worshipers. It it finds expression in a hundred ways, even a thousand ways, but we are all worshipers. And one way that the worship of Jesus, a huge way that the worship of Jesus finds expression is singing. Is singing. Now, it doesn't say that these believers were singing. It says they they were worshiping and fasting and praying. And so prayers were part of their worship and encouragement was part of their worship and maybe some Teaching was part of their worship, but I've got to believe that they were singing too. I, I, I read a, uh, a quote this last week that kind of surprised me. I mean, it shouldn't, but uh, I can't remember who said it. I can't remember where I read it. It was, it was that the most often repeated command in the Bible is sing. Sing. And when your heart is full of treasuring Christ and savoring Christ and prizing Christ over money and job and, and even wife and kids, husband, husband, wife, kids, family, the good things that God gives us, when we treasure Christ above all those things, we will sing. We'll sing. We'll sing praises to him. It shouldn't surprise us that sing is the most often repeated command because the, the biggest book in the Bible is a song book. You've got 150 of them. And some of them, like 119, 100, Psalm 119, is really long. It's like, that's like 10 itself. So we are called to sing. This church at Antioch, they were a worshiping church. They loved Christ and they treasured Christ and they worshiped him. When we are satisfied with Christ, we will worship. We will have this treasuring of Jesus overflow into speaking and singing. We won't have to be cajoled. Come on, don't you think you ought to sing? You know, kick someone a little bit. I remember one time I was at a church service, and and I I understand this. Sometimes people get up in front and they say things that they didn't think about saying before they said it. But the guy that had the mic said, hey, nudge somebody next to you and say, are you ready to sing? It's, that's not, I mean, okay, that's fine. But what we ought to do is put Christ before people. That's what, that's my desire is put Jesus before you so that you see him with the eyes of faith. 
and you want to sing. This church was a worshiping church with hearts full of love for Christ. Number two, the church at Antioch believed that God spoke and they wanted to hear from him. So they were worshiping church. They also believed that God spoke and they were eager to hear. Notice how our text starts. Verse one, chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There were in the church at Antioch, prophets and teachers. It doesn't just say, now there were a group of people in Antioch, believers, disciples. But Luke, who wrote this, specifically wants us to know that Antioch was a church rich in the prophetic gift and in the teaching gift. They both are plural. There were prophets, plural, and teachers, plural. And then it gives us a list of five names. I'm not going to go through them. I don't think that it's necessarily an exhaustive list of the prophets and teachers. But Luke wants us to know there were prophets and teachers here. There were prophets. The word prophet is used in a range of ways in the New Testament. I mean, in the most general sense, it just means someone who speaks under inspiration on behalf of someone else. I mean, even in Titus chapter 1, it refers to poets as prophets, pagan poets, that is. In this context, I I think it simply means someone who speaks a message from God under the influence of the Holy Spirit. They receive something from God, the Holy Spirit, and they seek to speak it in their own human words. 1 Corinthians 14, as we've been going through here on Sundays, describes the prophetic gift as receiving a revelation from God or from the Holy Spirit and then delivering it in your own words or in the prophet's own words. And it's the, for the purpose of upbuilding, encouragement, and consolation. It's not to gratify oneself or aggrandize oneself. It is for the benefit of those that the message is spoken to. In Antioch, there were prophets. In fact, I think it's likely, I, it doesn't say this, but I think it's likely that in, in, in verse 2, where, where the Holy Spirit gives this guidance and says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to, I think it's likely that that was spoken by a prophet. It could have been an audible voice, but I think it's more likely that a prophet that was there spoke that. So this direct leading and guidance, I think, came through one of the prophets there. Not only were there prophets, but there were teachers. Now, teachers are those who open up God's book, the Bible, and read it and explain it and seek to apply it to those who are hearing. In fact, back in in Acts chapter 9, it says that when Jerusalem heard what was happening in Antioch, they sent Barnabas there. And Barnabas went and saw the grace of God and rejoiced at what God was doing But he thought, this church lacks something, though. They need some sound teaching. And so he had an idea. He went to Tarsus and got Saul and brought Saul back to Antioch. And it says Barnabas and Saul taught for a whole year. I think the idea is that they taught a lot over the year, not just for an hour on Sundays, but they were teaching a, a lot of people, new converts to Jesus. They were teaching for a whole year, these new believers. 
And the teaching that Saul and Barnabas gave them was so transformative for their lives, so formative, so fashioned them in the likeness of Jesus, and not only brought them to faith in Christ, but also taught them how to live the Christian life, that in Antioch we're told that disciples were first called Christians there. Christians mean Christ one. They were ones who looked like Christ and wanted to live like Christ. This church believed that God spoke through prophets, through his word, and through teachers, and they wanted to hear him. Now, just take a step back for a moment. If you've grown up in church for any length of, or been in church for any length of time, you've heard that, that, that the scriptures are God's word, and you probably have an idea that teaching is, we're, we're to humble ourselves under teaching that seeks to be accurate and true to God's word. But sometimes we can become familiar with these things and we lose this sense that, you mean to tell me the God of the universe speaks and I can hear him? I mean, he wants to, he wants to speak to us. It's amazing. Psalm 8 says, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take notice of him? You ever thought about how small the earth is in the scope of all the cosmos? It's like this tiny planet and we're just these tiny people on this tiny planet. And yet God takes special interest in us to communicate himself to us in words that we can understand in words that we can receive and that we can trust in, in words that can transform our lives. Well, this, this church at Antioch, I, I think they believe that. They were gathered together, and when a, when a prophetic word was spoken, it was not like, I doubt that's really from God. They were ready to receive it humbly, Now, it says they continue to pray and fast, so I'm sure they were just humbly inching that direction, but but they were ready to receive it. How often do you come to a small group or a prayer meeting or a corporate worship gathering and think to yourself, the Lord has spoken. God has spoken today. Wow. Next Sunday, well, gosh, don't wait till next Sunday. Next time you open your Bible... Wherever you're at or wherever you decide to read and you read a verse or a chapter, just think to yourself, the Lord has spoken. He's spoken. When we gather together and, and a scripture's read, which we, we always lead our service by reading a scripture, guess what? God has spoken. God has spoken. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing that God speaks. Well, this church believed that the Lord spoke and they heard from him often and they wanted to hear from him. And I just wonder, do we? Do we want to hear from him? I mean, the the wonderful, comforting things that he has to say and the challenging, convicting things he has to say and 
the things that sound strange to us and the things that sound very familiar and, and the things that stretch us and the things that make us feel really comfortable. Do we want to hear what he has to say? This church believed that God spoke through prophetic words, through the teaching of scriptures, through the scriptures themselves, themselves, and may we as well. Number three, the church at Antioch believed that God hears and answers passionate prayers. I read um, a short article by a guy named David Wells this last week, and it was called Prayer. The essence of petitionary prayer is rebelling against the status quo. I love that. He's taking it from Luke 18, the, the woman who keeps coming to the unjust judge, seeking justice. And finally, the judge, who didn't fear God, didn't respect her, finally gave it to her because she would not take no for an answer. And part of that article said this. I've heard this before, but I just was challenged with it again. The reason we don't pray is because we don't really think that God hears or we're not sure he'll answer. I was challenged with that. Isn't that true though? We'll call our friends and complain because we know they'll hear. And they may say the things that we want, want to hear to our complaint. We'll get on Facebook because we know hundreds of people will see our complaints there. And maybe give us their sympathy in the comment section. But if we believe that God hears and answers our passionate prayers, then we will be on our knees, on our faces before God often, seeking him for the help that only he can give us. And again, the God of the universe who upholds all things, who upholds trillions upon trillions upon trillions of stars and all the galaxies, he is not taxed one bit that he can't listen to your prayers and come to your aid. In fact, Psalm chapter 34 says, he stoops low and inclines his ear to the prayers of his people. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. This church believed it. And they were seeking the Lord passionately in, our, in this, this meeting that they had. They were pursuing God passionately. It says that they were worshiping and they were fasting. They were worshiping and fasting. Christian fasting is more than just going without a meal or three meals. I, I understand. I, Alyssa and I were trying to do some intermittent fasting because I heard it's good for you. Okay, amen. That's not necessarily Christian fasting. I just don't get to eat as much as I want to. Fasting for the Christian was and still is done for a purpose. There's purpose in it. It's a way of expressing to the Lord that you hunger for him and his help and his guidance and his power and his presence even more than you hunger for food. It's a way of saying to God, this much, Lord, I long for you. And this church at Antioch, they were seeking the Lord with fasting and with prayer. They were seeking the Lord earnestly 
and passionately. I, th- I think they were seeking the Lord for the direction and guidance that we see that they end up getting. I think their prayers were something like this. I mean, doesn't, again, it doesn't say how long they fasted. We don't know how long this prayer meeting was, but this was a, this was a corporate effort. And I think their prayers went something like this. Lord, what do you have for us next? Show us, give us guidance, give us direction. What are our marching orders, Lord? And I think the fact that they were fasting and praying shows that there was a measure of desperation. A measure of desperation. They were longing for the Lord to show them what he had for them next. When's the last time and don't show your hands. Please don't, okay? I, I'm, I mean, I am challenged by this. When is the last time in desperation you said, I need to give myself to fasting and praying because I need help. Help overcoming a sin or help leading my family or help this area or that area. Whatever it might be, I need help. I need God's power. I need God's direction. I need his wisdom. And giving yourself to fasting and praying. Well, they fasted and prayed. Their desire was to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, and God answers with powerful, clear, decisive guidance. Listen up. Verse 2 says they were, so they were, they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, and while they were doing that, the Holy Spirit said this, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. Now, I think, again, Luke is the author of the book of Acts. He wrote the gospel as well. I think Luke wrote this in such a way that we are meant to see a clear connection between fasting and praying on the one hand and God's clear, decisive guidance on the other hand. They were fasting and praying and seeking the Lord, and God gave them clear, decisive guidance in response to their fasting and praying and seeking of him. Amen. This church believed God heard and would respond to their prayers, and they, they were not disappointed. God did hear and respond to their prayers. Number four, the church at Antioch, they responded in a rather risky and radical way. So God answered their prayer by giving guidance and direction, and their response, I think, is if we stop and think a bit, I think it's kind of risky and radical. At least I could see it feeling risky for me. Verse 3 says this, Then, so the Holy Spirit said, Set apart these two for the work I've called them to. Verse 3, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. They prayed with expectancy. God answered, and they acted based on what God had said. And I think it's risky and radical what they did. You might be thinking, what's so risky? I've read through this before. Nothing seems out of the ordinary to me. But imagine if you were part of that church and you weren't at the prayer meeting, but but a friend came over the next day and said, hey, did you hear about prayer last night? 
yeah, I mean, gosh, so-and-so, the prophet spoke up and said, the spirit is, wants us to set apart Barnabas and Saul for this special work to go to other nations and spread the gospel. And, and so we prayed for a while longer and, and we sent them off. Sent them off? What do you mean? Yeah, they're gone. What? Barnabas and Saul? Aren't they like the main leaders here? What are you doing? Why didn't you tell the Holy Spirit? No, you can't do that. But they did. They responded in a risky way, I think. I think we breeze over probably lots of passages like this. We don't just stop and think like, whoa, that is, that is strange. There are times God tells us to do things that defy our reasoning. I'm not saying they're anti-rational. I don't mean that at all, but, but just like, why would he have me do that? Doesn't he know that's not going to work? Doesn't he know that's a bad idea? Doesn't he know we're going to be we're going to be short-staffed or whatever. Doesn't he know this is not going to work out? Sometimes it doesn't make sense. And we actually see this all throughout the Bible. We see this all throughout. You see, God is not nearly as concerned about our comfort as we are. I mean, he's definitely concerned about us being taken care of and having eternal hope and being safe in that sense. But along the way, I mean... Think of the story of Gideon. You guys remember the story of Gideon, Judges um, 6 to 8? God, the angel of the Lord shows up to Gideon. Uh, the, the people of Israel are being oppressed by the Midianites, and God shows up to Gideon. Gideon's a timid guy. Yeah, he's, you know, he's kind of hiding because he's doing something he shouldn't be doing. He's kind of hiding from it. And Anyway, he's a timid guy. Angel of the Lord shows up and says, You are a mighty man of valor. You are going to deliver my people from the Midianites. And Gideon's like, you are crazy. Who are you talking about? And, and then the Lord said, you know what? And, and I'm not going to do, I'm, this is the uh, cliff notes, right? I'm not going to do it with 30,000 troops or you're not going to do it with 30,000 troops and not even 10,000 troops. Here, tell you what, Gideon, you're going to have 300 troops. We see stories like that all the time in the Bible. And God does these things. God does things like this so that he is glorified and so that his cause advances. And not always ours. Unless, hopefully, ours are really closely aligned to his. And I pray, I pray, I trust that ours are closely aligned to his. You see, the paradox of God's kingdom is you gain by losing. You live by dying. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel, he will find it. This church was losing, I shouldn't say they were the two leaders, but they were losing two of the key leaders in the church. I would say probably the two key teachers in the church. But 
after fasting and praying, they, they laid their hands on them. They, they anointed them. They prayed for empowerment. They set them apart as they were told to do. And then they sent them out because by faith, they understood that it was gain for them. And more importantly, for God's purposes and mission. Many of you probably, maybe, maybe most here have heard of a guy named Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott was one of five missionaries who uh, had a desire to take the gospel to, um, it's called Operation Aka, to take the gospel to this unreached tribe in um, Ecuador. And upon, upon making contact with this tribe, I think it was, they made, you know, peripheral contact with them one time, but upon making serious contact with them the first time, they were speared to death. You know, Jim Elliott had a, he was a charismatic guy, he was smart, he was a good preacher, he had a, he had a nice career back here in the United States waiting for him. And some people probably saw what happened and thought, what a waste of talent. Elizabeth Elliott, Jim's wife at the time, uh, was asked, or, or she was being comforted shortly after his death and the funeral uh, at the loss of her husband. I'm so sorry about the death of Jim. And she turned, and I'm sure tears streaming down her face. It wasn't, I'm sure she was not stoic about it at all. And she said, my husband Jim died many years ago when he gave his life to Jesus and offered his life to Christ's service. And may that be said of all of us, that we have died to ourselves and our own, our own, like we've got to have our way. Jim Elliott, his, probably his most well-known quote, it was written in his journal, is, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. This church understood that. They understood the gaining of losing and the living by dying. And they responded to the Holy Spirit in a risky way on the path of obedience. And for all of us too, we'll have to if we want to follow Christ. It it won't, won't be like Jim Elliott. And for us as a church, it won't be like the church of Antioch, but, but we'll need to. Number five, the Antioch church or the church here at Antioch was, they saw themselves as partners with the Holy Spirit. The church was told by the Spirit, like the Spirit said, you set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them to. Then after they were told this, they, they did by continuing to fast and pray, laid hands on them, and then they, they sent them off. That's verse 3. But then the very next phrase in verse 4 says this. So, or therefore, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. So verse 3 says the church sent them out. Verse 4 says the Holy Spirit sent them off. Which is it? Yes. The church and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit decisively sent them, right? It was the Holy Spirit who decisively sent 
but the Holy Spirit sent them through the church, through his people, through his people. This is an amazing intersection between, and I don't, I think I need to be awakened to this more. Maybe you do too. Just that this, this intersection between our work and the Holy Spirit's work, we never want to work apart from him. But when we work, we want to work in partnership with him or be workers with him in what he's doing. When we do the Lord's work in the Lord's way, we are not merely working for him. We are working with him. It's an amazing thing. We are working with him. We are joining into what he is doing. He energizes it and he strengthens it and he empowers it. The church was told, send these two out. They did and it says the spirit did. It's an amazing thing. So whether we are called to work, to the work of raising our kids to love and walk with Jesus, which if you're a parent, you are, or you are called and, and working to help a refugee family, whether you are praying for the sick or sharing the gospel with a neighbor, whether you're going on a short-term mission trip or you think maybe someday you're called to be a missionary or you are called financially to get behind with prayer and finances, someone who is reaching an unreached tribe in Indonesia, we are called to co-labor with the Spirit. We are called to work with Him. Here's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6. He says, working together with Him, with the Lord, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Working together with Him. And just before that, it says, Christ makes his appeal through us. <clears throat> William Carey's one of the early, he, he was a, a missionary in the um, late 1700s into early 1800s. He had a passion as a young man to, be, to go bring the gospel to people who had never heard it before. And he went to the missions board and told them his passion. They said, young man, you sit down. If God wants to save the heathen, he'll do it himself without your help. And of course, God will do it, no doubt. God will do it. God is sovereign. God will bring in all of his people, no doubt. But he does it through his people. He works through us. We work and we are called to work together with him. That's what the church at Antioch was doing. And we have the privilege of doing this as well. Amen. We work together with him. Have you, have you ever thought about ministry that way? <clears throat> Another verse that, that comes to mind is Philippians 2, 12 and 13. It says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for God is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out what God is working in. God is working and we are to work as well. We are to act out, if you will, what God is working in us. So what does this have to do with you? Well, hopefully, hopefully 
um, the Spirit's been applying things to you throughout this message. But just very briefly, these qualities that marked this church really are not unique. It's not like this is for, this is for the radical type or the radical church. It's not like that. Here's what I mean. Worshiping Jesus was their fuel. And it is meant to be ours as well. A heart that is burning with love and passion and prizing and treasuring of Christ. If you lack that, seek the Lord. Ask him, Lord, say, Lord, fill my heart with a passion for your son. The Holy Spirit loves to answer that prayer. If we mean it. If we mean it. Believing that God hears and answers prayer was what these people believed. They believed that, and we should believe that too because this is the promise for all Christians. God hears. God answers. Knock and keep knocking. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. For whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. And whoever knocks to him, the door will be open. This is, this is the promise for all of us as followers of Christ. Perhaps you've fallen into a time of unbelief regarding this truth and, and your prayerlessness is the evidence of it. Then, then, then repent and say, Lord, help me. Sca- just rip through the Bible, grabbing hold of promises that he has for us to answer our prayers. They believe that God spoke and, wanted, and, and, and they wanted to hear from him. God's people have always been people of the word. They always have been. And may we be as well. May God revive in us, or maybe for the first time, just give us a passion, a taste for his word. Psalm 19 says, better than honey, sweeter than honey, sweeter than honey. Say, Lord, make your word to me sweeter than honey. Please, Lord, make it sweeter than honey. These believers in Antioch took risks on the, in the path of obedience, and we all are called to do that if we're going to follow Jesus. Jesus said, the way is narrow, excuse me, the, the path is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life. It's just, there's, there's just risks on both sides, and we run through them. They were co-workers. They saw themselves as working together with the Lord in his mission. And every, get this, every true born-again Christian is a co-worker with the Lord in his work. It's just whether or not we believe that and will be obedient to it. And so the Lord wants to use you to advance his cause in your home, in your place of work, in your neighborhood, um, in your extended family, among your friends. He wants to use you to advance his gospel in this town and in this state and, and beyond. He wants to use us for his sake and his glory. So let's seek him. Let's ask him. Let's, let's even give ourselves to fasting and prayer.